All right, well, let's take our, our Bibles and turn to the Scriptures. We're uh, continuing in our series through Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 27. Our Bible text is verses 12 through 36, a fairly lengthy section. It will help you if you follow along in your own Bible. So I encourage you to do that. Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 12. Just give you a moment to turn there. All right, well, let's give our attention, our full attention to the reading of God's word. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what we becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lift him, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, shall I go down? No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's word. I need uh, God's help in this time of proclaiming it. We all needs, need the Spirit's help in hearing and applying it. So I invite you to pray with me. God, we're so grateful that you have spoken we don't need to hear your voice out of the heavens. We have your word in this book. 
And Father, as we give our attention to it, we need your help. We know that it is living and active. We know that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. We know that it is profitable for us to, to hear it, to read it, profitable to teach us and correct us, to rebuke us if necessary, to train us in every righteous thing, and so that it would equip us for everything that you call us to do, God. We know that to be true. We know this word makes us wise to salvation. And so, Father, we need you. We need you to give us that attitude of mind and heart that, will, that is eager to hear what you have to say. Lord, for all of us in the room, we need, to, we, need to, we need your voice to transcend the voice of a man. And we're asking you to do that now. Father, be gracious to me as the proclaimer of this, that I may be faithful to say only what is useful for your people. And I pray that as a result of this, the Lord Jesus himself will be glorified. And we ask it in his name. Amen. What happens if? It's a question that we ask all the time. It's a kind of a thought experiment we do all the time. In fact, a significant way that we learn to navigate life is by simply understanding cause and effect. That, that principle, it's been called an a priori principle, that is to say a beforehand principle, which means it's self-evident, right? Uh, it is, is it the third, uh, Newton's third law? Uh, every, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Causes bring effects. There are effects of, of certain actions. In so many ways, we also live it out, right? We, um, the little child may be warned of fire or the, the hot stovetop, but sometimes the lesson isn't learned until he or she tries to put the hand to it, right? If the painful consequence of, of some action seems far removed from the action, then I think it takes longer for us to get the lesson, doesn't it? Unless, of course, there's someone someone with knowledge or experience that has gone before us that speaks into that situation. Well, as we back up to the beginning of the Bible, we know that Adam and Eve were warned by God about the consequence of taking the fruit from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had the knowledge to say, if you eat of this, you will die. He told them the consequence, but they ignored it. And the immediate effect of that was broken fellowship with God, a spiritual death to be sure, but also the certainty of physical death at some point in the future. Now, of course, uh, to relieve Adam and Eve of some of the consequences of their action, God made promises, and he promised a remedy, and if they would trust in that promise, yes, they would still taste physical death, but the spiritual relationship would ultimately be restored and so now we fast forward to where we are in the, the Scripture and this whole series that we've been in um, just of late dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is really the story of a man who became a people who had set, who'd been set apart by God to live under the security and the well-being of the promises of God that were originally made to Adam and Eve. Now as we look at this text, the text that we read together, the, the initial audience, as I've been saying in weeks past, the initial audience for this text, for this story, were the Israelites, the people descended from one of the 12 tribes named after the sons of Jacob. They were about to possess the land of Canaan, that land that was promised to Abraham. They had been wandering around the wilderness for some 40 years. 
They had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, and now they were about to possess the land. And as they're hearing this story about the beginnings of their people, the beginnings of who they are as a people, they needed to understand something essential. Even though, even though they lived under the promises of God, they were not immune from sin and its effects. They were not immune if they failed to keep their focus on God's promises. And we see that on display in this text in particular. Now, the big story of Joseph is, uh, and his brothers, the big story is ultimately in the providence of God, how they ended up in Egypt. Again, just mentioned a moment ago that the Israelites had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Well, this is how they got there. This is the story of how they got there. And this is God's providence, which means that God envelops human actions, whether those are good or evil, and folds them into his plan to accomplish his purposes. But the very promise made to Abraham that he would be a great nation was accompanied by this, this um, understanding that there would be suffering. So he was told, after hearing the promise, know for certain, God told Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So, the Israelites are now hearing how the promise to Abraham of a land, but what would precede it would be some suffering in Egypt, and they're hearing how they got there. Now, as we look at the details of this part of the story, I want us to focus this morning, keeping the larger, uh, uh, the larger objective in view, which is this is how God worked His promises to bring uh, the Israelites to Egypt and then ultimately rescue them. But as we look at the details of the story, I want us to see the immediate effects of the sins of Joseph's brothers. They lived in view of God's promises, and yet they took their eyes off those promises and they embraced sin. We want to see the effect of this. So three effects. First one is that sin blinds. It blinds you. Second, sin enslaves. And third, sin grieves. That's where we're going this morning. Now, the Israelites needed to learn that lesson, but that lesson's helpful for us too. And so uh, let's get to unpacking this as we take a look at this narrative. First of all, sin blinds. Um, verses 1 through 11 we dealt with this last week. We learned there that Joseph's brothers were jealous of their father's favor on Joseph. And so they hated him for that. His father had given him this multicolored robe, this long-sleeved robe, and every time Joseph wore it, when Joseph wore it, it was, a, it was basically a, a, an announcement. I am the favored son. So that annoyed his brothers, and they loathed him for it. What made them hate him more, of course, as we learned last week, was that he shared his dreams of how he would eventually rise to prominence over them and they would be humbled before him, seeking his favor. And that hatred that built up in them, that hatred of sin blinded them. It blinded them to their father's goodness towards them. We can see this in the text. Jo uh, Jacob called Joseph, verses 12 through 17, sent him to check on his brothers who were pastoring the flock at Shechem. Now, that's a 50-mile journey. How are the sons doing? So he sends 
Joseph to, to bring a report. It's probably several days' journey north of Hebron. And we see in the text that when Joseph didn't find them at Shechem, he discovered from a local that they were even further away to Dothan, another, another 15 miles north of there. So Jacob sent Joseph for no other reason than to simply check on their welfare. They were blind to their father's goodness. But they were also blind to Joseph's willingness to look out for their well-being, right? Joseph went willingly. He said, here I am to his father in verse 15. He wasn't resistant in any way. He obeyed his father. Verse 18, they conspired to kill Joseph even before he was able to tell them why he came. Now, I don't doubt that, you know, we're not told everything in the narrative, but I don't doubt that Joseph pleaded with them and told his brothers why he came. Here's the purpose. Father has sent me. But their hatred for him made, uh, for Joseph, made them unwilling to see that he was ultimately serving his own father and their father. And think about this. Was, was their hatred for Joseph enough for them to hate Jacob's good intentions, good desires for his sons. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer. Again, we dealt with the fact that he had these dreams and now they're mocking him. Here comes that dreamer, a mocking label. So Joseph's brothers, we know from the text, they hated him because their father favored him. And, and they, they also hated the revelation from the Lord. They were given some important information through Joseph's dreams. We know about that they were from the Lord because we know the end of the story. So the fact that they couldn't even see any wisdom from the Lord through Joseph as a vessel, they were blind to that as well. Now, those who live with physical blindness, you know, just observing this, you know how debilitating this can be. And I don't doubt that anybody who suffers from physical blindness I don't doubt that they would seek every medical possibility to have that sight restored. All of the things you can imagine that you simply cannot do when you don't have sight, things that we simply take for granted. And if you've had your sight and then you've lost it, that's a huge loss. But the spiritual blindness that is caused by sin that spiritual blindness fools people into thinking that it is, in fact, the preferred way to live. That's the difference about spiritual blindness. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3.19. Jesus, being the light that came into the world, was rejected because people loved the darkness. Spiritual blindness convinces, fools the one who is spiritually blind to believing that's the preferred way to live. It blinds them to the possibility of hearing good news from God. The Apostle Paul, in explaining this, said in 2 Corinthians, about the good news. He said, even if our gospel it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The good news of Jesus is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the evil one, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we see that. We see spiritual blindness. 
the good news of Jesus to rescue someone from the consequences, the eternal consequences of their sin, people hear that news and they dismiss it out of hand as malarkey, foolishness. Those who are perishing have been blinded. Nothing short of a miracle of God can take away that spiritual blindness. And we know this, fellow believers in Jesus. We see light because God opened our eyes. We see light. We see Christ because God has awakened us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Joseph's brothers were blinded by their sin. And we look at the world around us, there are so many people that are blinded by their sin. And if your eyes have been opened to the gospel of Jesus, thank God where you sit that your eyes were opened. You wouldn't have come to that on your own apart from divine intervention. Well, the second thing, second observation from this text is that sin enslaves, it enslaves. Uh, an institution as old as human civilization, slavery has been practiced in, in virtually every place on the planet. We know that. It's a, a dehumanizing system that treats fellow human beings as, as mere cogs in an economic machine. That's what slavery is. And of course, the, the example that dominates our thinking in this nation is, is of course the African slave trade. And it's a blight on our nation's history. Of course, it was abolished at great cost of life in the Civil War as the, the, the enforcement of the Emancipation Proclamation. And of course, you know your history that was followed by the ratification of the 13th Amendment in April of 64. And then another proclamation uh, relating to the uh, freedom for slaves in Texas on June 19, 1865. That's been recently uh, established as a federal holiday, good things. But of course, slavery is not a, a unique sin to the American colonies. We know that. Before colonization, some indigenous tribes on this continent enslaved their captives from war, and they traded them. On the African continent and Asia, slavery existed long before the Europeans turned it into a massive um, international industry. And, and tragically, slavery still exists. India, China, North Korea, I read there's a, a group that I think it's slave aware or something. North Korea, Libya, Uzbekistan. And even in this and other nations where, where we know this, that young women are forced into prostitution, slavery still exists. It's a horrific, horrific evil. Well, the very nature of slavery, we get it, is that there is a master who has power and there is a subject whose entire existence is to serve the master's interests, his, his profit his pleasure. Now, my, my point that slavery, or sorry, that sin enslaves, that's, I think, obviously dis in display in this text here. Joseph's brothers were, were full of hatred and jealousy and conspired to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw him into a pit. Now, it seems that Reuben in the story has no, has no desire, desire to do this, to do this evil. evil. So, he's, he's sort, of, sort of a little bit kind of a good guy, kind of. And he convinces his brothers just to throw him into the pit. Don't kill him. And he plans to rescue him later. The text tells us that. 
Now, for some reason, we, we, the text doesn't tell us why, Reuben is out of sight. And then Judah, when he sees the band of Midianites or Ishmaelites traveling, they, they decide, well, don't, let's not kill him. Let's, let's sell him. We'll get some money. In that situation, Joseph still would likely die in their minds. Slaves often die at the hands of their masters, at least in those days. At least they wouldn't have their blood on Joseph's blood on their hands. Now, even if they pulled back from their original intent for some reason of conscience, their sin still led to slavery. He was sold. And in the end, both Judah and Reuben, even though they may be slight good guys in this case, they were still carried away by the collective sin. Now, it's obvious. Sin of the brothers led to the enslavement of Joseph, but there's a less obvious fact here that the brothers were enslaved by their sin themselves. Their own sin enslaved them. They had given them over themselves over to a master called evil. And the reality is that until they would own up to their sin, until they would repent of it, happens at the end of the story, not this story, but the end of the book. That sin would continue to torture them and rule their lives. You can imagine what it would be like. Now, perhaps they thought in, in selling Joseph or initially killing him and then selling him, they, they probably thought that there would be some sort of freedom from the torment, apparently, that he caused them. But there's no freedom. The latter state was far worse than the initial. But now what? They would have to go face their father. The robe in that blood, shred it up a little bit. Use that blood. Make it appear. Jacob falls for it. Hey, something interesting here. If we back up in the story, again, the brothers used a young goat to carry out the ruse that Joseph was dead. Back up the story. When Jacob and his mother conspired to steal the blessing from their father, from his father Isaac, a young goat was killed, skins used. Interesting for Jacob, he continues to reap what he had sown earlier. But again, back to the brothers. Now, every time they looked into their father's eyes and saw his grief, they would have to conceal the lie. There was no freedom in this. Ten brothers, I'm assuming that Benjamin was back with his father, they would have to make sure that they kept their story straight. No one could break ranks. No one could even hint that the story was any different. They had to build on the lie day after day after day. They had to behave as if it was true, even though they knew it wasn't. Not one slip up, or they would disappoint their father. Every time Jacob would lament, the brothers would be on knife's edge, just hoping that he wouldn't doubt the story. That sin blinded the brothers to the glory of the promises of God and enslaved them enslaved them. 
And instead of delighting in things that God had promised, instead of seeing life circumstances, challenges, even Joseph's favor by Jacob, as somehow God using it, they, they chose the path of sin. And they enslaved their own hearts. They fed their evil passions and became a servant to a master called sin. Now you can imagine being in their shoes. How difficult that would be. Now we have hindsight. We can look at this. And, well, don't do it. Don't do it. But how often? How often are we tempted in the moment to take that? I think this will solve the problem, we think in our minds. Sinful solution, but that'll be okay. No, listen, if, if you embrace sin, if you try to normalize it in your life, if you try to pretend that it is good, it will become your master. Jesus said this, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, the word practices, makes a habit of, includes that in their life. Now, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But if that sin is your pattern, if you're owning it, if you're saying, I want to continue doing that, that's what Jesus is referring to. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's this idea when a sinful choice is before us that it will give us some sort of freedom. And there's no such thing as complete freedom. God alone has absolute autonomy. We need to know this. There isn't any personal autonomy. It doesn't exist. Bob Dylan sang it almost prophetically. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. One or the other. There's no, I'm in charge. If you think you're in charge, you're just fooling yourself. Personal autonomy is an illusion. If you do not submit to God's authority, then that very rebellion is a submission to a slave master called sin. And let me just address all of us in the room. There are constant temptations put before us. If you want to keep a foot in the world, you think you can dabble. It doesn't work. You're going to get sucked in. This is how the Apostle Paul describes the human condition. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? There's the choice. The fact is, sin leads to death. It's so enslaving that it leads to death. So, so what is the rescue from this slavery? It, it's the thing that the brothers failed to do. They failed to trust in the promises of God. So the thing is trust the promises of God. So, brothers and sisters, today, you are here if you're a follower of Jesus because you have trusted in the promise of God. And if you're not yet in the family of God, if you're still enslaved to sin today, here's what you need to do. To trust in the promise of God, first you have to agree with God that you're a sinner needing rescue. You have to agree. The Bible says you're a sinner. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, you've got to agree with God. I'm a sinner. 
You need to confess that sin and turn away from it. Now, you don't have the power to do that on your own, but you, you must acknowledge that it has to be turned away from. You've got to say, I've got to leave it behind. Second, you have to agree that your debt to God needs to be paid. And you have to acknowledge that you can't afford to pay it because the only way you can pay it is with your life eternally tormented in hell. So you need someone to pay that debt. And that's where trust in Christ comes in. God sees you in your desperation. God sees you wallowing in your own sin. God sees you enslaved to all of those things. And he sent his son. And he had him crucified. And if you trust him, if you put your faith in him and you see what he has accomplished for you at the cross, the total debt for your sin is wiped out before him because it was laid on the son of God. You need to see that Jesus died in your place and rose again to give you absolute assurance of eternal life just like his. And thirdly, you need to surrender your personal autonomy to Christ. You need to trust his words going forward, living under his word as authority over you. And here's the beauty of this. This is something that unbelievers do not know. God's commands, hear me on this, are not hard. And I don't mean they're not hard, humanly speaking. They are hard, humanly speaking. But with the strength of God, with the Spirit of God dwelling in you, with the Word of God permeating your life, it says this in 1 John 5, 3, that God's commands are not burdensome. And brothers and sisters, you know this. If you're in Christ this morning, you know if you've lived for a while and you've by God's grace, have been able to leave those sinful things, some of those sinful things behind. It's still, you're still on the journey. We're all on the journey, right? You know there's joy. There's joy in obedience. There's joy in coming under submission to the word of God. God's commands are not burdensome. They're the most freeing thing that we could ever hope to have. Well, finally, sin grieves Sin grieves, causes grief is what I mean. Now, we all know this. Grief is that deep sorrow that is associated with loss. And most often we think of it in terms of losing a loved one through death. I know some in this room you've lost maybe recently, a few years or decades, lost a loved one. You still think about that, a mother or father brother or sister, you've lost a child. And you know that profound loss because you feel that, that permanent separation, at least in this life. And as believers in Jesus, if our, if our loved ones who have died in the Lord, we, we know that there's a, we will all be reunited, reunited in Christ. But there's still grief in this world, and it's, it's a very real thing. Well, in our text, we can see that there's a real effect of sin, which is grief. Sin brings grief. And it's good that we see that. Reuben's own initial complicity with his brothers led to Joseph being sold to the Midianites, to the Ishmaelites. Now, Midianites and Ishmaelites, it's, it, it, they're almost used interchangeably here. I think the point is, just as an aside, that Moses, the author, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is simply telling, telling the Israelites, look, these are sort of your distant relatives, Midianites came from, 
from Keturah, Abraham's wife after Sarah died. Of course, Ishmaelites came from Hagar, uh, Abraham and Hagar. So they're kind of used interchangeably here. It's not a point to get hung up on. But again, Reuben's own complicity with his brothers led to his own grief, right? You see, when he returned to the pit, thinking somehow he's going to work this out without directly confronting his brothers, kind of do it on the DL, right? Okay, I'll just, I'll get him out of the pit and I'll bring him back to dad. Well, he returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes. And of course, later when they returned to their father with the robe, then, verse 34, Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Now, if you've read the Bible you see this tearing the garments, this, this external expression of mourning and grief. It's a way of, of letting others around know that my sorrow is deep. And it's often accompanied, as is the case of Jacob, wearing sackcloth. That's a rough garment, and, and it's meant to be chafing the skin as a constant reminder. Rough clothing. This is a bad time. This is a time of mourning and, and grieving. And sometimes accompanied in Scripture with, with putting dust or ashes on the head. But that tearing of the clothes could also be an expression of grief over sin. King Josiah, after the, um, the workers discovered in the temple as they were re repairing it, they, they discovered in the temple the book of the law. And it was brought to him by one of his servants and read before him, encountering the first five books of the, the Bible, the law, encountering Genesis through Deuteronomy, he tore his clothes as an expression of grief for the nation of Judah who had disobeyed God. See, ultimately, sin brings grief because it kills. Sin brings grief because it kills. It, it killed Adam and Eve. Initially, spiritual death and eventually a physical death, and that gets carried on to every one of us. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Well, what's the remedy to the grief of sin? What is the remedy to the grief of sin? One remedy to the grief of sin is grief for sin. Sin causes grief. Well, one thing that we can do to take action against that grief caused to us is grieve over our own sin. The Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And Paul's point here, the Apostle's point, is that there's two kinds of grief. There's the grief like, oops, I got caught. And there's a kind of grief that says, I've offended Almighty God. And that godly grief brings us to the place where we're ready to confess our sin before the Lord, repent and turn to Christ in faith, knowing that apart from Christ, there is no there is no relief. Because if you do not repent, your grief 
from sin will last an eternity. Joseph's brothers, they knew the promises of God. I'm sure they heard the story about Abraham, about Isaac. And as Jacob shared it with them, this land will be ours. God has promised us. And those promises had with them certain requirements to trust God, to imitate his character, to, to live in a way that, that honored the Lord. But even in light of those promises, Joseph's brothers allowed sin to blind them. They became enslaved to that sin. And they observed their father's grief and experienced the grief of their sin. The only one who can undo the effect of sin is Jesus. Jesus has come and he has opened our eyes. Jesus has come and he has freed us from the bondage to sin. And Jesus has come and he has dried every tear. So now when we look to Christ, we see hope. We see hope. And while we'll suffer and, and bumble around in this world, if your eyes are fixed on Christ, you know there is a day coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and your voice will be added to that chorus of praise to him. And in that day, every tear will be dried Every pain will be finally and fully gone and we will with delight enjoy Christ forever. This passage is, is simply a warning. It was a warning for the Israelites. Don't go down that path. Now they did. <laughs> they did. They would repeat it over and over and over again until the very promise of a seed promised to Eve back in the garden, would appear that seed being Christ himself who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent who introduced sin into the creation in the first place. And all of us who are in Christ this morning can with confidence look to Christ knowing that our eyes have been opened, knowing that we are free in him and that there's coming a day when all grief will be gone. So, take the warning, Christian brothers and sisters. Don't toy with sin. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for, um, for your word. It's just a reminder that um, sin is uh, a hideous thing <laughs> that just wrecks everything. And God, that's why you for forbade any rebellion in the beginning. We know, Father, that we have made a hash of things. We have messed things up. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to open our eyes, to free us from that grip of sin in our lives and to, and to take away our grief. We thank you that he, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, bore our sin so that we could be united with you. We're grateful for that, Father. 
Help us to live in light of your promises. We ask it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.